You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. It's good to have you here. We are going to begin a new series today called Resolve, as you see, because, well, when I grew up, um, we, so many people talked about making New Year's resolutions. I think that's kind of fallen away, hasn't it? Why? Who wants to do it? Who keeps them, right? How long do they last? I still do notice usually that the gym is really busy in January, but by February, it's half empty again, right? So um, yeah, we struggle with resolving anything in our lives, making a resolution and having it actually solved in the end. Now you saw in the little video that um, AJ helped me put together lots of issues in this world right now that need resolution, need resolving, but nobody seems to be solving many of those, right? And that's the question, can those things be solved? Will they be solved? And the Bible actually gives us much hope on that. The answer is yes. God is bringing a resolution. God is bringing a solution, a salvation for every one of those things in the end, ultimately. They have been solved upon the cross, and they will be totally resolved when he comes again in glory. And God, God's future with us is going to resolve all those issues. And if you don't get anything else, I just want to uh, give you that hope today. Because the message we're having today is a little harsh, I think. Well, the words of Jesus are one of the more difficult passages that we're going to be looking at. He didn't just say it once, he said it a multiple times, but we're going to be reading in Mark chapter 9 from that. Some of you have heard this before, this cartoon by Pogo that said, we have met the enemy and he is us. That was 1971, by the way. 1971. For Earth Day that um, Walt Kelly wrote this animal comic strip, Pogo. And at the time, he was uh, taking Oliver Perry's quote. I don't know if you knew of who he is. He was an admiral, I believe, in the Navy in 1812 at the battle for Lake Erie. He said, we have met the enemy, and they are ours. So Pogo turned it around, and I think in a good way for us, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Terrible, terrible grammar, but do you know what it's supposed to be? <laughs> they are we. <laughs> I know this is kind of weird. We have met the enemies, and they are we, or he is I. I don't know. I mean, you tell me, because it's not woe is me. It's supposed to be woe is I, because it's only. Who's a grammarian in our midst? Anybody? Yeah, well, we'll let it go. Everybody knows it as he is us. But I think that's a good paraphrase of what we're getting at today. When we're starting to talk about this idea of resolving problems, it's so easy to point the finger out there somewhere, wherever that happens to be. Um, you can say it's that group, that nation, that ideology, that ism, that boss. <laughs> that worker, <laughs> that repair person, that corporation. You know, we can point the finger elsewhere. I think that tends to keep things from being resolved when we do that. 
What we find out in the Bible is that this is where I need to start. And this is a hard part of the lesson. Now, Jesus says it in some pretty harsh language today. I think Jack Parr, some of you know who he was. Have you ever heard of Jack Parr, Zach? Yeah, he was the original Tonight Show host before, right? Johnny Carson. And you don't even know who he is. Do you know who Jay Leno is? Okay. We have to go down the generation. See, I told you I was born in the Jurassic period. So um, he said this, looking back, my life is so far seems like one long obstacle course with me as its chief obstacle. Now, if I remember, Jack Parr's life was a little messy. And um, so is mine. You know? The biggest problem is me. So today we're looking at ourselves as the cheap obstacle before you go anywhere. And if you want to ever do like resolving a conflict between individuals, you've got to start with yourself first and see what your part is in it. It might only be 10%, but you still have to own that 10%. Whatever it is, you've got to figure that out first. Because if you go in, guns a-blazing towards somebody else and saying they're the problem, first and foremost of all, guess what happens? It will not get solved. It will not get solved. It's just, it becomes a cons almost like a conspiracy of keeping things going. And I have a feeling there's some people in our society right now, uh, they call them conflict entrepreneurs, really. They're making money off of keeping the conflict going. Okay? A lot of money, man. Or a lot of hits on their social media accounts or whatever. We're going to look at that down the line, but we have to start with us first, for, with me first. So we're reading a very, one of the difficult sayings of Jesus in Mark chapter 9 today, verses 43 to 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. See why it's kind of a harsh, hard word from Jesus? I've never preached on this. Do you, you know why? <laughs> it's like, what does this mean? What is going on here? So in the New Testament class that we're going to have, we're going to learn how to interpret even passages like this to figure out what is Jesus really after? What's going on with this? So today we're going to explore it under these three points. First of all, the obstacle. Secondly, the remedy. And third, the result. Now, I use the word obstacle partly because of Jack Parr, but also because of what Jesus is actually saying in the Greek here. Our English translation is not quite... Well, it is an interpretation of what he's saying. I, I know that sounds... Well, you'll, you'll see. So, so the obstacle. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Then he goes on, not only the hand, it is better for you to enter the 
crippled with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. He then goes on to um, <clears throat> the hand, the foot, the eye, right? I'm not sure if those are the only three body parts that he's really trying to focus on or if that's the real issue. But the word that's used, that's translated in the ESV here, to cause to sin, is actually not the Greek word hamartia, which is what sin is, okay? But it's the word scandalon. You can almost hear what it, what it is. It's a scandal. Scandal. It's, and the word in the Greek is used uh, pretty exclusively in the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Bible's translation into Greek, scandalon, in this way. It's a baited trap. It's a snare. It's something, it can either be something that entices or causes something so that you get trapped, stuck, lose your life in, or it can be something you trip over and is a big hazard in your life. But the word scandalon is exactly where we get the word scandal. And it, and it is the fact that Jesus is not talking about this little sin or that sin per se. But as uh, Gustav Stalin, when I looked at this word in the theological dictionary of the New Testament, he says it's really anything that would cause the loss of faith. I mean, and isn't that about right? You lose your faith, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. Something gets in the way of believing. Something draws somebody away from trusting in Jesus. That's the worst thing that can happen. And what he is saying in this passage, I think, are two things. First of all, that I can be a scandal on, a stumbling block to others. And that's what Jesus says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, to trip, to be trapped, to not believe anymore, to sin. It would be better if a millstone was tied around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Now, this is a very scary subject, by the way, for pastors, any church leaders, I think, because you know there have been too many scandals in Christianity in the United States and among the top echelon, you know, too often. And there have been too many scandals in terms of cover-ups of child abuse and everything else. And the saddest part about it often is how people who are now adults, after they've gone through this 20, 30 years ago, have such a difficulty ever believing in God anymore because of what they've experienced. I think Jesus is after something there. That's a scandal that we have to watch out for. It's not the only one. Uh, David Kinnaman wrote a book uh, a few years back called Unchristian. And I think I've shared this before. The book's title is not referring to those people out there. What he did is he's part of Barna, which does a lot of surveys of faith matters in the United States. He wrote this book in response to what he had heard from many people who had either left the faith or were never a part of the Christian faith as they looked at the Christian church and Christians in it, and they said, those people are unchristian. Why? They're too political, too power-hungry, too hypocritical, and too judgmental. 
They are nothing like the Jesus that we believe they say they are supposed to be like. That is also a scandal that Christianity has to deal with today. What's sad is within the Christian church, or this whatever we call Christianity in America, whatever the Christian industrial complex, you could almost say, because it's a big business in a lot of ways, the saddest part is how little gospel good news is actually going on. It's all about, you know, 12 steps to a better you, to, you know, look at us, we're so great, to all about the dude, the, the sage on the stage, to whatever, and it's like, that's not Christianity. That can become an entire scandal in itself, a stumbling block for anyone to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus, in his day, looked at the religious people, the most religious, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and said they were a scandal. They were whitewashed tombs. In other words, they were so dirty and filthy inside, in a sense, but on the outside, they looked good. But they were keeping people out of the kingdom of God. I mean, these are harsh words that I have to deal with as a pastor, and it scares the living daylights out of me at times where it's like, Lord, I don't want to ever be a reason why someone does not believe in you. Does that make sense? Oh, and at a university like we're at, <laughs> I see scandal in the street preachers that come. But I'm afraid that I also have seen scandal in some Christians and how they treat other Christians on campus. And it should bring us to our knees. I'm not looking for perfection. I'm just looking for a way for us not to be a cause for somebody else to stumble, for somebody to be trapped in unbelief, to lose their faith. So we can be. <clears throat> you know, it used to be... Um, in apologetics, I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. It's not uh, we're apologizing, although I think these days we might need to apologize for Christianity at times. But apologetics is really the uh, art of defending the gospel and finding the reasons to believe and how reasonable it is, etc. It used to be the big argument and the debate would be over whether Christianity was true. Okay, then over. Um, while I was growing up, is it relevant? That is, does it make any difference at all? Today, the issue for a lot of people outside of the church, is Christianity safe? Or is it toxic? Is it harmful to the world, to the environment, <coughs> to your personal identity? And we have to defend it on that ground as well. They don't care if it's true or not. They want to know if it's even safe to come to church anymore, or are they going to be um, dealing with something that could trap them in a way that would harm them personally? Wow, that's a scandal. So we can be a scandal on that stumbling block to others. And then <clears throat> I can be a scandal on to myself. Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands. And he adds, then, you know, the eye and the foot. Now, you might go like, well, 
what does he mean by this? Because I know my hand, if I cut my hand off, and then every time I say a word, you know, foul language, I cut my tongue out. I mean, what would I have left? Right? Most commentators realize that this is hyperbole. He's trying to overemphasize or go to the extreme to make a point, right? He's emphasizing the ultimate importance that faith, that your trust in him has, and that nothing, not even the good things in life, should ever get in the way of you trusting and believing in him. So what causes you or me to stumble, to trip up, uh, to be trapped into not believing? What obstacle gets in the way of me trusting in Jesus Christ? Could it be things that I don't expect, right? How about the fact that I am feistily independent and don't want to have anyone help me with things? Could that get in the way? I think so. How about my need to control matters? How about my politics or maybe my pursuit of what I call the good life? You know, Jesus talks about this in the chapter before, I think, and, I, and that's one, one of the possibilities of trying to understand this text is look at another one near there. In Mark chapter 8, he says, calling the crowds to himself, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Did you get what he's saying? Jack Parr was right. You're the biggest obstacle. I'm the biggest obstacle. I get in the way. Dr. Harry Tybout, who was a good friend to Bill Wilson, who began Alcoholics Anonymous, he once wrote this, it is the ego which must be disposed of if the individual is to attain a new way of life. Life without ego is no conce new, new conception. 2,000 years ago, Christ preached the necessity of losing one's life in order to find it again. Mere man alone will all too often seem powerless to stay the force of his ego. He needs assistance and needs it urgently. <clears throat> I'm my biggest problem. And I can't solve it. I can't solve the problem. I can't get myself off the throne. It seems impossible. But that's what God brings about. He brings the remedy. You know, we might think that this remedy, our second point, this remedy is a bit drastic when Jesus says, cut it off, pluck it out, throw it away, lose your life, and that's how you gain it. But what Leon Morris, one of the commentators on the text, says, he says this imagery suggests, he, it emphasizes the crucial importance of taking whatever measures are necessary to not lose your faith. I think it's better for you to be struggling with paying your bills than if you won the lottery and started to trust your own wealth rather than in God. Okay? I think it is better to remain single than get married to someone who would draw you away from trusting in Jesus. 
It's better to face life of weakness and illness than to have great health and trust your own abilities rather than in God. And you might kind of say to all of this, um, <clears throat> but John, can't I win the lottery and have faith? Can't I have great looks and fame and great times and still believe in God? My question back to you is this. Do you really know yourself? Do you understand the scandal you can be to yourself, your own trap? You know, how many uber-wealthy, mega-famous people do you know that are really close to God? There are some, but very few. They're the exception. <laughs> Jesus himself says, how, how, how likely is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, the largest animal known in the Middle East, through the tiniest opening. We'd say it's a sm snowball's chance in Florida. <laughs> right? Same kind of idea. So what's amazing is, for you to gain, you have to lose. For you to win, you have to give up. It's amazing, isn't it? But you look at the lives of some of the greatest people in the Bible that you might go like, oh, wow, look at them. Saul, on the way to Damascus, doesn't lose just his sight. His ability to keep the law and to claim his own righteousness in the law. Peter did not just uh, lose his ability to call himself a great fisherman. When Jesus, he lost his ability to stay in control and to know it all. And he had to lose it again and again in the Bible. The reformer Martin Luther says that God, to do his proper work, that God wants to save, God wants to resolve things, God wants to give and love and forgive, but to do his proper work in your life, the things he really wants to do, he has to do the things he doesn't want to do. His alien work. You know, it's just like a parent. To really, what you want to do is to love your children and bless them and give them all these things. But what you don't really want to do is to have to discipline them. But you do it in order to be able to love them. God does the same thing with us. And so Luther says he has to kill our will, that his may be established in us. He subdues the flesh and its lusts, that the spirit and its desires may come to life. So when Jesus uses the harsh language of cut it off, pluck it out, get rid of it, lose your life, he's not doing it to harm you, but to get you to the point where you can receive everything he wants you to have. What's amazing to me is that Jesus not only says those things, you have to lose your life to save it. He does those things. He loses his life to save you. Jesus knew that we were our worst enemy and that we were also enemies of God, and yet he still came to this world. He knew we would reject him, and ridicule him. He knew we'd cut him off 
from the land of the living, and he still did it. He still came because he would not allow anything to get in the way. His love is relentless, and he would not allow anything to get in the way of you trusting and believing in him. And so he lays it all down and gives it all up. Now, there are physicians, great doctors out there who might risk their lives and face difficulties in order to save someone else and even do something like that. And there are soldiers who on the battlefield will give up their lives or take the gamble of possibly doing it to rescue one of their fellow soldiers. And there are a few friends who will take your place in difficulties. But Jesus, he goes onto the battlefield and doesn't rescue his fellow brothers, but the enemy. He goes on the battlefield to save the enemy, to save me, to save you. Jesus faces what he says here, the unquenchable fire. And he cries out in the pangs of hell from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To save you. He let nothing get in the way. And now he'll give you new eyes to see and new hands to serve and new feet to go to share that love with others. So what's the result with all of this? You know, so easy, like I said, when you face conflicts and struggles in life, my first tendency, especially, you know, in my immaturity, I like to point the finger at other people. It's a lot easier. You know, that's the problem. They need to change. This should be happening. These people, I'm entitled to better treatment. You know, you name it. Don't you see us? And you know, our society right now, our culture is kind of almost um, encouraging that kind of thinking, always the problems elsewhere. Jesus would say the first thing we do is look at the scandal within. What is the trap that I'm setting for myself? What am I tripping over? Maybe it's my stubbornness, my control, my obstacle of my ego. What needs to be put to death so that his life is raised up in me? You know, Dorothy Soleil wrote that a Christian is a person whose death is behind him. And what she means by that is that your life, you have died, according to the book of Colossians, you're, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, as it says. When Jesus died, you died with him. And when he rose again, you were raised with him. You, don't, you have been put out of commission. That old nature is no longer there. You don't have to justify yourself because you have been justified. You have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to new life. Your death is behind you, and his life is before you. You don't have to appease or please anybody. You are already pleasing to God, and therefore you can live freely to serve others. There's no boasting about your life. <laughs> the only one to boast in is Jesus himself, and he's the one who delights in you. He sings and rejoices over you. You find yourself when you are found in him. Isn't that interesting? I find out who I am when I find when I am found in him. Now, we're going to be, and we are, if you don't know it already, we're already an imperfect fellowship. Um, my life is still has filled with contradictions. 
You know, I aspire to this and I achieve this. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying, right? My prayer is that God would be using our imperfect fellowship in such a way that we just keep pointing to Jesus and nothing gets in the way, no obstacle. It's not look at me, not look at you, not look at this, not look at that, but look to Jesus. I loved uh, my hometown in Michigan. I've shared this before. It was started as a mission uh, back in 1845 to the Chippewa or Ojibwe Indians that were there in Michigan at the time. And what their whole purpose for starting that town and these people who came over from Europe was to show how beautiful it is to live with Jesus. That was what they said. That was their motto, how beautiful it is to live with Jesus. Wouldn't that be a great motto for all of us? If people can see the beauty of Jesus in my life, phew, I don't need anything else. Rick Borger talks about it this way. He says, can you imagine a church ad that says this? We invite you to come to our congregation. Here you will be immersed in a story that exposes much of what the world has handed to you about human life, its values, and its purposes as lies. Declares our world and all its schemes dead and promises to put you to death and raise you to new life. Welcome to Thrive. <laughs> that's happening, though, in every church that's authentically living out the gospel. I think Jack Parr was right. My life is an obstacle race, man, and I'm the chief obstacle. But I think the hymn, Just As I Am, might have it even better. In the third verse, I think it is, is this. Just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every obstacle or barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Let's pray. Lord, um, you know all the things that need to be resolved in our lives and in this world. We're just going to lay all those on you because we know, Lord Jesus, through your death and resurrection, you have overcome the evil of this world and the obstacles even in our lives. Lord, the only reason I want, if, if, that, if there's any reason that someone does not believe in you, I want it to be about who you are and what you have said and what you have done and nothing in our lives in this fellowship that would ever get in the way of that, Lord. We pray that we would never be a scandal, a scandal on to others. And we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, keep us mindful of the scandal that we can be to ourselves, Lord. You've overcome every obstacle. Every barrier has come down because of your grace and mercy. Lord Jesus, you let nothing get in the way at all between us and you. And you came right to our hearts and our lives and you're coming to us today. Lord, you are present here right now. You don't just say some words and stay at a distance, but you are present here. Your spirit is here. You are right here. And all you want is us. And all we have to give you is ourselves, Lord. We thank you that you've taken us as enemies and made us your friends. We are amazed. Lord God, as we now uh, will offer ourselves along with our offerings for your service in your kingdom, we pray that whatever is given, Lord, that no nothing would become, uh, that it would become an avenue, not an obstacle, a means, Lord, to sharing the gospel with others in this community, both at FGCU and in the greater Estero Benita Springs 
Fort Myers community, Lord, Southwest Florida, that we would be an avenue, a vessel, a means of your grace reaching others, Lord, through our words, our actions, and our deeds. We pray, Lord, that that would be the case. We ask, O oh Lord God, that those who have been wavering, those little ones, whoever they are, the vulnerable, the needy, Lord, wouldn't, would find healing and comfort and peace through us. That we would become reasons to believe, not reasons to walk away. And Lord God, as we come as well after uh, our offering to just prepare our hearts to receive all that you are in the Lord's Supper today. Lord, we know um, <laughs> if we would say we have no sin, we are just deceiving ourselves, not you. And the truth would not be in us. But as we confess our sins, Lord, you are faithful. You are just. You forgive our sins. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you, Lord, that we can have fellowship with you and that as you give yourself to us with bread and wine, Lord, we want to receive all that you are and be transformed by all that you've done for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, you know those who need your healing in our midst. You know those who need uh, your love and mercy and grace. We pray that there would be appointments this week that you set up, divine appointments, divine times that we aren't even aware of, Lord, that you use us to overcome any obstacles that people may have to your love and mercy and grace, that we can share that, Lord that you use each of us as your missionaries, as your representatives in this community, Lord. All this we pray, Lord, just praising you and thanking for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.